Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recording. This is Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Never say never, but never. I plan on leading this team with an unwavering standard. Everybody love everybody. We will call it the golden standard. And this is the standard that will drive this football program to its 12th national championship. With Sean Styers. I like that guy. Yeah, what you could do is, is you could have a barbecue on that it's head. a good time, you know what I mean? On Sports Radio 960 AM, double. USBT. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him. And now your host, Sean Styers. Well, hey there, and welcome to a Tuesday edition of Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beats. We're jam-packed. We'll finish a little bit early tonight because we've got the South Bend Cubs continuing their 12-game homestand tonight when they host the Fort Wayne 10 Caps at Four Wind Field. For Wins Field, they... Swept all six games from Peoria last week, and they will look to keep it rolling tonight against Fort Wayne. 6.45 pregame show, the first pitch at 7.05. Beautiful night for some baseball, so that's, of course, why we'll wrap up a little bit early tonight. Also coming up here in about 20 minutes or so, former Notre Dame pitching coach Brian O'Connor, who's been the head coach at Virginia now in his 19th season. He'll join me at 5.30 for some 2002 College World Series memories as we continue to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Notre Dame's College World Series team. Uh, So we'll do that at 5.30 with Brian O'Connor. He was the pitching coach again on Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team now at Virginia. An hour from now, Ryan Roberts from irishbreakdown.com has a Notre Dame football recruiting update. And then Vince D'Addario with me for rapid fire after that. So lots of stuff coming up tonight we have 116 days until notre dame opens its season it's football season of course at ohio state fighting irish just missed their third trip to the college football playoff this past season and you know they ultimately ended the season ranked eighth in the final ap poll they were ninth in the coaches poll so top 10 on both counts one loss in the regular season lost the fiesta bowl you know big lead couldn't quite hold on and all that Different stuff, but uh, Sporting News Magazine has done us the favor of releasing an early top 25 ranking for the upcoming season. I love this stuff, especially when they don't just like, you know, go teams one through 25, give you a sentence or two, you know, at the most. They actually went into, you know, some uh, some depth on each of these teams. So we're going to kind of go through here. I'll tell you where Notre Dame stands in this informal, non-binding, top 25 ranking. Again, this comes from the Sporting News. So we'll work our way to Notre Dame. We'll start at the top. Who's number one? If I gave you a one guess, you would probably get it. <laughs> it's Alabama because, of course, it's Alabama. But uh, what changed, says the Sporting News? Well, in addition to being a great recruiter and strategic coach, Nick Saban, Knows his way around the transfer portal. They've brought in three potential starters. 
Georgia Tech running back Jameer Gibbs. Remember him? The Irish faced him. Georgia wide receiver Jermaine Burton and LSU cornerback Eli Ricks. And uh, they did lose a tight end to Texas. But uh, the lowdown from the sporting news, this year's NFL draft big board features nine, count them, nine Alabama players currently in the top 50 potential uh, draft picks for next year. So that's, I mean, top 50, that is the first two rounds. Nine. Uh, that starts with Heisman Trophy winner Bryce Young, as well as All-American linebacker Will Anderson Jr. And you've got Gibbs. You know, so it's 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 stacked. They are stacked, as usual, after making the college football playoff last year and uh, ultimately uh, not winning a championship because Georgia did. But uh, that's uh, that's where the sporting news is. No shock. Rankings start with number one, Alabama. Number two. Probably guess on Notre Dame's schedule. That's right. Ohio State, the Ohio State Buckeyes. Notre Dame's week one opponent checks in at number two. They've got some changes, a lot of, you know, a lot of changes for uh, for a lot of these teams. Ohio State brought in the Oklahoma State defensive coordinator Jim Knowles. Um, Tanner McAllister, a safety Followed Knowles over from Oklahoma State to Ohio State. They lost a couple guys to the transfer portal. You know, that'll happen when you're really any team. But when you're Ohio State as well and you've got as much success as you have, you've got, you know, burgeoning depth charts and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, Sporting News thinks this might be the best offensive team under fourth-year head coach Ryan Day. And they've, you know, had some good offensive teams last year, you know, kind of up and down at times, but they bring back C.J. Stroud, finished fourth in the Heisman voting, Trayvon Henderson, Jackson Smith, and Jigba, and Marvin Harrison Jr., you know, a, a really good supporting cast that scored 45.7 points a game last year. And, of course, big thing for Ohio State, they will open the regular season at home against Notre Dame. They will close the regular season at home against Michigan. So, um, you know, that's that's basically the bulk of their schedule. But, you know, they will have Michigan State. They will have Penn State and, and, and so on, those teams in there. But Ohio State checks in at number two. Then at number three in the Sporting News preseason rankings, you've got your defending national champion, Georgia Bulldogs, coming third in the top 25. And they had five players selected in the first round of the NFL draft a couple of weeks ago. Think about that for a second. Notre Dame had two players drafted in total the entire draft. Georgia had five, not just five players, five defensive players. That's why they won a national championship last year with uh, with JT Daniels. Or not with JT Daniels, but uh, with uh, Stetson Bennett. Excuse me, with Stetson Bennett as the quarterback. JT Daniels transferred to West Virginia. They also uh, lost Dan Lanning, their defensive coordinator. He took the Oregon job. But, uh, you know, George is going to reload. That's what they're going to do. They broke the national championship drought finally, and uh, they've got a lot of pieces in place to, uh, to you know, to make another run. That's what they're going to do. The, the cupboard is not bare there, so uh, it should be uh, another good season for Georgia. Here's the question mark. To me, anyway, because next on the the sporting news ranking, we've got the top three: Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia. No surprises there. They've got Clemson all the way up at number four in this thing. 
And, you know, Dabo and the Tigers finished 14th last year, 14th in the final polls, 10-3. and That was a down year. They've had some turnover, though, themselves because they lose both coordinators, Brent Venables and Tony Elliott, to uh, Oklahoma and Virginia, respectively. Uh, they, you know, they lost a running back, Lynn J. Dixon, uh, to the transfer portal, a couple of receivers to the transfer portal, you know, so there's some turnover there, and it's, you know, this this is a team that had some question. Now, I guess DJ Uyangalale has uh, slimmed down a bit. He was trimmed down in the spring, and he's got uh, some uh, some quarterback competition from Cade Klubnik, and so uh, I, I guess they expect that to go into fall camp, so some questions for Clemson. More questions maybe than Clemson has had in a long time, especially coming off their first three-loss season in a long time. But the Sporting News has them all the way up at number four in this preseason poll. So all the regulars, one through four, Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, and Clemson. I'm really skeptical of Clemson. I'd like to see it. But again, the ACC you know, has been down. But next up, that old hype train continues for Texas A&M. They went 8-4 last year, 4-4 four four in the SEC. Did not finish in the top 25. And the Sporting News has them all the way up at number 5. And, you know, they lost a quarterback to the transfer portal. They did pick up Max Johnson from LSU, the quarterback, in return. They lose Mike Elko as defensive coordinator. He goes to Duke to become a head coach. For the first time, so some questions there for for Jimbo down at Texas A&M. It really seems like all this hype is built up because of his recruiting. More of that seems like it should, you know, start to show itself maybe in the next couple of years. I don't know about this year, but I guess we'll see. But the big question they have: there's a three-way battle at quarterback. Haynes King, uh, Johnson, and uh, you know Max Johnson and freshman Connor Weigman. So we'll see, you know, they, you know, again, they've, uh, Jimbo's been out there. He's been recruiting well. We'll see if that really pays off with the number five ranking for Texas A&M this season. So Notre Dame does not show up in the top four, uh, five in the sporting news, top 25 preseason rankings. And they're not in the top six either because it is Michigan there at number six. Uh, they lose offensive coordinator, Josh Gaddis. He left for Miami. Defensive coordinator Michael McDonald goes back to the Baltimore Ravens in the NFL. Uh, so now they've got two, uh, you know, they've, they've actually got co-offensive coordinators. Always interested to see how the co-coordinator kind of thing works out. And Jesse Minter taking over the defense. And, of course, you had Jim Harbaugh interviewing with the Vikings. But he, quote-unquote, decided to return to Michigan this season but uh, you know they they went to the college football playoff last year no doubt in that uh, they're going to have a quarterback battle between Cade McNamara and J.J. McCarthy that'll again go into fall camp will it be a timeshare situation again I guess we shall see they've got a pretty soft early schedule that's going to help them out a little bit it's basically like a four-game preseason Colorado State Hawaii UConn and then Maryland before it starts to get a little tougher at Iowa, at Indiana, then Penn State, then Michigan State. So you get, you know, back-to-back Penn State, Michigan State, then at Rutgers, Nebraska, Illinois, finish up at Ohio State. So that's uh, that's what things look like for Michigan. Michigan is number six. So 
We finally see Notre Dame now in the Sporting News Top 25 preseason ranking. Here's where Marcus Freeman's first team shows up in this preseason rankings. I had him around 14th as a preseason ranking at this time a year ago. And, of course, again, they finished top 10. A uh, lot of questions, more a lot more questions last year than what they have this year. So I'll read you exactly what the Sporting News says. First, what changed for Notre Dame? Marcus Freeman took over as head coach and retained Tommy Reese as offensive coordinator. Former Miami coach Al Golden takes over the defense. Northwestern safety Brandon Joseph is a huge get in the transfer portal. The lowdown. Tyler Buckner is the favorite to be the starting quarterback, but he'll have to hold off Drew Pine. All-American tight end Michael Mayer is the focal point of an offense that features Chris Tyree, Logan Diggs, and breakout candidate Lorenzo Styles Jr., the defense returns edge rusher Isaiah Foskey and a strong group of linebackers. Strength of schedule won't be an issue, not with Ohio State, BYU, Clemson, and USC. So that is verbatim what the Sporting News read, what I just read you there that they said about Notre Dame. So here's a few thoughts that I have on that. Uh, first, the, the, the line about Tyler Buckner, the favorite to be the starting quarterback, but he'll have to hold off Drew Pine is what they say. And I guess I would just say, if Tyler Buckner has to hold off Drew Pine to become the starting quarterback, <laughs> Notre Dame's not going to be the number seven team in the country. They're not going to be a top 10 team in the country. They're probably not going to be a top 25. If, you know, looking at that one specific, you know, little part of that sentence, hold off, because that would, that, that makes you think that this is a close competition. And Drew Pine appears to be a great guy. I think he's a pretty capable backup. We all saw him, though, in the blue-gold game. And now I know the, you know, spring games aren't everything, but it was, at the very least, a live scrimmage. You know, he is going against live bodies out there. Uh, two interceptions in the spring game. Shakier than what we saw of him in two real games last year. And he was a 50% passer last year. And that's still my biggest thing. And he was, he was a little bit better, a little over 60% if you combine his numbers for both teams uh, in the blue gold game, but again, there's there's got to be more from Drew Pine, and and I would be concerned if Tyler Buckner is quote unquote holding off Drew Pine and not pulling away from Drew Pine during fall training camp for that starting quarterback job. Uh, sporting news, uh, you know the other line: All American tight end Michael Mayer, the focal point of an offense that features Chris Tyree, Logan Diggs, and breakout candidate Lorenzo Styles Jr. You know, I agree with most of that. We all know my uh, Mayer rather is going to be the focal point of the offense how much Logan Diggs will see is up in the air at best right now and I don't know exactly when this was written but it was just published recently but you know Diggs has we found out tore a shoulder labrum in the blue gold game and I just don't think it's wise to expect anything out of him this year I think anything you get from Logan's dig Logan Diggs should be you know like the bonus because it's just delicate you know we're talking about the band essentially the, the labrum, it is the band that holds your shoulder together. And when that tears and, you know, like you're playing tackle football out there. If you go down on the ground and, you know, like your arm is out and you basically land on your armpit and that thing pops again, you know, you can just boom right right into that once again. They essentially, I've had both of my labrums done myself and they're, they're just titanium in both of them, titanium pins <laughs> holding, holding all of the, that together in there and I just you know that soon we're talking about April 
to September, April, what, May, June, July, August, you know, five months. I don't know. Maybe he can, maybe he can't. But again, I would not expect a whole lot recovering from an injury like that. But obviously, they're going to have some good running backs. Jadarius Price, Audric Estime, and, the, you know, the freshman coming in and everything. Uh, the other line from the Sporting News about Notre Dame, the defense returns edge rusher Isaiah Foskey and a strong group of linebackers. No problems there. We're all expecting big things out of Foskey. A lot of people projecting him as a first-round draft pick. Next year, Brandon Joseph could be in that conversation as well. They mentioned getting him, adding Al Golden. Pretty excited about this Notre Dame defense this season. Final line Sporting News says about Notre Dame, strength of schedule won't be an issue, not with Ohio State, BYU, Clemson, and USC. And I guess if I were going to put those in order of strongest to weakest, uh, you know, I mean, just look at the own the own ranking that Sporting News put out. It would go Ohio State, Clemson, USC, and then BYU. And BYU and USC, kind of a toss-up. We know Ohio State's going to be good. Will Clemson really make the big bounce back that they're talking about after losing both coordinators, uh, a decade of Brent Venables as defensive coordinator, DJ Uyongalale, not that good last year. Clemson was just, you know, they were they were so bad that Pitt won the ACC <laughs> last year, basically. So I just, I don't know how much stock to put in Clemson right now. It's interesting they include BYU on this list of teams that would bolster Notre Dame's schedule strength. They were 10-3 and three last year, which is good. I'm not, I'm not knocking it or anything, but Sporting News also doesn't have them ranked in this ranking that we're talking about where they say strength of, you know, BYU should essentially help Notre Dame's strength of schedule. So how good are we supposed to believe they are? You know, they do have a returning quarterback, dual threat guy coming back, but we'll find out about them early because they play Baylor and Oregon in their second and third games of the season, back-to-back. So those are going to be real tests for BYU. And, you know, then USC, Sporting News has them 14th in this ranking. Uh, what what are they going to be with Lincoln Riley? I know a lot of people think that they're going to make this big turnaround in year one. Maybe they do. I don't know. But it sounded like there were a lot more questions than answers uh, coming out of spring practice, and we know all the stuff going on with Jordan Addison, the Bolitnikoff winner from Pittsburgh, the you know the NIL, and you know that's really kind of caused the big stir with uh, with all this going on. So you know Addison hasn't transferred anywhere yet, and the Sporting News has USC 14th. You know they were four and eight last season, so I don't know what kind of boost Notre Dame Notre Dame is realistically going to get from those we know they'll get one from Ohio State they'll get at least something from Clemson I don't know what kind of you know schedule strength boost they get from those other two but biggest question to me that has to be answered and that can't be answered until they start playing games what's Marcus Freeman going to be like as a game day coach you know that's that's the thing because we know he can recruit you know we really won't even see the impact of that the recruiting until next season but, excuse me, how does, he, how does he call a game? Will he be more aggressive, less aggressive than Brian Kelly in different situations? How will he adjust as the game goes on? You know, he didn't adjust well in his first try in the Fiesta Bowl. Those are things that have to be shown and, and proven. Notre Dame's won 40 straight games over unranked teams, and I know a lot of people like to, you know, bash Brian Kelly for that, but that's how you have double-digit win seasons is making sure you're beating the teams that you are supposed to beat. And so love him or hate him, Brian Kelly knew how to win those close games. Is Marcus Freeman going to have the same fortune? Again, we won't know 
until the season actually starts and we see it. And, you know, along with that, close games, well, that lackluster kicking game we saw this spring hold the Irish back. So those are those are some big questions. Rounding out the top ten in the sporting news ranking, Utah at number eight, Oregon at number nine, and then Baylor at number ten. Oklahoma led by new first-time head coach Brent Venables at number 11, Oklahoma State at number 12. Uh, 13, Michigan State. USC is 14th. Arkansas, 15th. Uh, kind of going through here. Iowa, 20. Pitt, 21. Cincinnati at 22. Texas at 25. Everybody loves them some Texas before the season ever starts. And it kind of seems that way again <laughs> with, with USC sometimes as well. So that's uh, what the Sporting News has in their preseason ranking. So, uh, you know, that's just kind of a... A look at at where they have Notre Dame, number seven. I think that's a you know a pretty pretty good spot at number seven for the Irish uh, heading toward the regular season. We're going to take a timeout. When we come back, we will continue to uh, have a look or uh, to revisit Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team. It's the 20th anniversary of that team, and up next, the pitching coach from that team. Now in his 19th season as the head coach at Virginia. Brian O'Connor, that's coming up next on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Swing and a miss by Touchstone, and Grant Johnson with three strikeouts to end the first inning. 2-2 from J.P. Gagne. Swing and a miss, and that's the ball game. The Florida State win streak comes to an end at 25. Called strike three on the inside corner to Tony Ritchie. All he could do was stand there and look at it as it went right by him. Chris Neisel strikes out the last two batters of the first inning. J.P. Ganya into the windup. Futural swing and a miss. Omaha, here come the Irish. Well, we continue to look back at the 20th anniversary of Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team, and we are joined right now by the head coach of the Virginia baseball team Brian O'Connor you should recognize the name because of course before leading Virginia to five different college world series and a 2015 national championship he was of course pulmonary's pitching coach and a right-hand man from 1995 through 2003 at Notre Dame and that of course included that college world series team Brian how we doing today glad to talk to you oh great Sean thanks for having me on I, I was really really excited when you reached out to me about doing this unfortunately i was not able to get back to south bend for the reunion um a week or so ago but it's, it's an honor to be on and i just love talking about this uh, 2002 college world series team in notre dame and just have so many fond memories of my time in south bend it's a it's a pleasure to be on thanks for having me oh absolutely absolutely and you know that 20 years down the road now, and I mean, again, like I just said, you've been to five of your own there at Virginia, but when you think of that 2002 team here at, at, at Notre Dame, what, what are maybe some of the first things that come to mind for you, Brian? Well, I, I'd say, first of all, like, I mean, not many people, I think, really believe that Notre, Notre Dame could get to Omaha, you know, even though it had happened, Sean, as you know, back in like 1957 or right. something like that. It's just you know, at that time, 20 years ago, the landscape of college baseball is, you know, so so much dominated by everybody in the South and the teams that would get to Omaha. And, you know, I was just, just so proud because, um, you know, first of all, our leader, Paul Maneri, was just an unbelievable 
coach and manager of people, as you know. And, and you know, we really thought that 2001, you know, was like the best team that we could ever put on the field. Right. right? We, right. we were we were a veteran pitching staff. We were loaded and, and couldn't get there that year and just thought, geez, what do you got to do to make it happen? And, you know, lo and behold, the next year we had a, a group of young men, Sean, as you recall, that uh, they were just tough. They were – you know, they they would find a way to win the game, and it was coupled with a really, really young pitching staff. I mean, I think three out of the top four starters we had, maybe even four out of our top five were, were true freshmen. You know, freshmen threw the majority of the innings for us. Obviously, we had that really good guy at the end of the game, J.P. Gagne. Right. But, um, you know, just just a tough, gritty find a way to – to get better as a team and find a way to do it at the end of the year. And just, uh, just, you know, forever grateful for that, that, that group of guys and, and what they accomplished. Well, and as the pitching coach, I mean, you touched on a little bit of it there. You lose Aaron Heilman to the first round of the draft. Second year in a row, he went in the first round. He actually came back for his senior years, obviously, you know, but then it, so you lose him. Danny Tamayo is your number two guy. He's a guy who got as far as AAA after he was drafted. So, I mean, that's as good a one-two punch as you can have. And then you get all this. It's a heralded group of freshmen, Grant Johnson, Axford, Chris Niesel, Martin Vergara, but they're freshmen. So as the pitching coach, what were your realistic expectations for those guys going into that season? Well, certainly, Sean, as you know, they were they were a pretty acclaimed group coming in. They were, mm -hmm. you know, Chris Niesel was the player of the year in the state of Florida coming to us, you know, and and uh, you know Grant Johnson was really talented. Axford out of Canada. It was actually a, a group of seven pitchers. I, I mean, I remember like it's yesterday meeting with that group of seven, and that was half of our pitching staff was true freshmen <laughs> meeting with them in the dugout and saying, "All right, boys, you know this is the way it's going to go." and you know, you, you all have good enough arms. You have good enough stuff. It's just how quickly can you mature and adapt to this level of baseball. And we knew we had some, some guys that were really skilled. It's just, you know, do they know how to manage a game? Can they handle the pressure and things like that? And, you know, the the early part of the season, as you know, as it goes for Notre Dame, Sean, you get a chance to go down south and play three or four games on weekends. And, you know, out of the gate, we had a tough weekend. We lost two out of three down in New Orleans and then you know just kind of went back and forth and just really took that early part of the season the first four weekends to get those young pitchers some experience right and start to build them up we knew what we had position player wise I and mean, when you had Andy Bushy and Steve Stanley and you know uh, Brian Stavisky and Paul O'Toole and Solman and you know Bill Meyer and yeah. Sanchez and Joe Thayman and all those guys that you know they had experience they were good and they were the the core of the team but we knew that these young kids on the mound would have to come along and boy as the season went on and on they just got better and better and you know by by the middle of the year Sean as you recall that I mean they weren't pitching like rookies anymore no. they were they were proven that they could do it we, every weekend and you know when you had a good offense like we had that helped and played really good defense behind it but boy they got better and better and what Grant Johnson did and you know, um, obviously, Gagne was a huge weapon at the end. Even though he started some games, he was a huge weapon for us at the end of the ball game. Yeah, it, you know, Niesel, you mentioned him. I mean, he's his career started off really strong. He he had he like he set a freshman record, ten strikeouts in his first start, and he's he's rolling right along. And then all of a sudden, 
he's out with mono for a month. It's like early April, he's out for mono for a month, and then so he gets back a couple weeks before the postseason. Were you guys, I mean, it seemed like you were kind of still really even feeling your way, you know, kind of around with him after he came back, trying to, to you know, build up his strength and endurance. Is that kind of how it was? That's right. Yeah, it was. And some guys had stepped in and done a really nice job in his absence. Uh, but, you know, that's a tough thing to come back from because right. the endurance that it takes to to pitch deep into the ball game. You know, once you hit that 50-pitch plateau and then then beyond, that's a tough, that's, that's a thing that's built up over over time. And, you know, so we knew it would be slow going, but knew that, hey, if this, if this team was going to have a shot to do what we wanted to try to do at the end of the year, it was going to take building him up to get him to the point that he was able to do what he did at Florida State in the Super Regional, you know. Um, so and him at his best was a real, real weapon for us. And, and it just took some time to get him back. We held it together. It gave some other guys some really great experience, which then created depth for us. I always say even today, Sean, that some, you know, sometimes we can look at injuries and say, oh, no, poor us. What are we going to do? But what it does is at certain points of the year, it creates depth. It forces other guys to step up and do the job right. as long as you can hold, hold it together. And then when those guys come back, it's like you have reinforcements and they're back and they're, they might be the best player, but now you've created some depth and some options that is going to hopefully serve you well down the stretch run. I, I talked to Paul O'Toole recently, and he was telling me about that decision for him to call pitches. That, that sort of morphed once the season started. What, what, what do you recollect of kind of how that decision was made? And, you know, that's, that's pretty rare really in college baseball for, you know, for the coach not to be calling things from the dugout. What, what was that whole process like? Well, it, it starts with Paul O'Toole. Right. I mean, he, he was a veteran guy under city, highly competitive, right. You know, player and, and, uh, but he knew, but, but yeah, but he knew <laughs> the game, Sean, and, and, and he knew, he knew how to handle a pitcher. And, you know, I like that if you have a veteran guy and you can trust him and, and, um, you know, what it allows to do is allows the pitcher to get into a rhythm and like that. And, and Paul had proven to us that he was capable of doing it. And, you know, a lot of times a young catcher's not, you know, but certainly he had some good experience and we trusted that he was the right guy to be able to do that. And, and um, you know, when that happened, Sean, the ownership that they take, right, as, as the players, knowing that there is no p- point in the finger, right? That yeah. pitcher knows the ball comes out of his hand. Ultimately, it's his decision. And that catcher knows behind the plate that he, he's guiding that guy on what to do. And so the personal ownership on the players when that when you're actually able to do that is is pretty special, but you're not able to do it all the time because that guy behind the plate might not be have the experience to be able to handle it. Talk with Brian O'Connor, head coach at the University of Virginia in his 19th season at Virginia. He was the pitching coach for Notre Dame in the 2002 College World Series season. And the other decision you you touched on a little bit ago, J.P. Gagne ends up being the closer. He he threw like a one or two hit shutout against BYU in the home opener, and then not long after that, he becomes the closer as well. What, what, what about J.P. do you think made him so effective in that role when you, when you moved him to the bullpen? Well, you know, he, he certainly had experience starting. He, he, um, he, you know, he had pitched a lot of innings for us, just really, really competitive, understood what it takes to win 
in, in, in either role. Uh, but, you know, just knowing that if you're truly going to be successful, you've got to have somebody at the end of the game that knows how to get those final three outs. They're the hardest outs to get in baseball. And, you know, JP threw strikes. He had a lot of poise. He's been in big situations. And he had an incredible changeup. Still mm-hmm. to this day, the best changeup I've ever coached. And, uh, you know, he had an ability to throw it for a strike and then throw it on top of the plate. Got a lot of swings and misses at it. And that's tough when you're behind the plate if you've got a, I don't want to say a trick pitch, but, you know, sometimes you'd rather hit a guy that has a really great fastball than somebody that has a really great off-speed pitch yeah. uh, when you're behind. So he just, he, he was a veteran, and we were, we were able to have those rookies start in those roles and um, you know and you know Ryan Kalita spot started you know at times and you know Pete Ogilvy you know started as well and so there were some some other veterans in there but JP was the guy at the end of the game I think it made a huge difference for us I mean I'll I'll never forget those final outs at Florida State and the Super Regional no with him on the mound and you know when we got to that point and he's in the game I, I just I had this unbelievable confidence in, inside myself that that was going to happen because that guy was not going to let that be denied. And I just, you know, Florida State trying to hit that change up from <laughs> when, when, when they're behind just wasn't going to happen and JP wasn't going to let it happen. Well, and I would think that it had to be even more effective because w- with the fastball that Niesel had, and he was throwing a lot of fastballs that day for JP to come in with that changeup that had to really help it even more, I would think. And he just wiped him out for that night. Sure. He did. Yeah, he did. Um, it was just like clockwork. It was, you know, a fastball for a strike, change up for a strike, change up on top of the plate, swing and miss, you know, and, yeah. and uh, it was, it, and you're exactly right. Niesel was very fastball heavy dominant. We were throwing a lot of fastballs in a lot of fastballs vertical. And then, you know, JP comes in and it's just a total opposite and you've got to adjust. And he's a tough guy to adjust to. And, um, you know, I just, that that day is etched in my memory of uh, that that accomplishment and just being able to share that with those guys and take that team to Omaha was something that was very very special. Absolutely, and your guys had the eighth best earned run average in the nation that season, but you didn't have one pitcher named All Conference, let alone All American. But you've got the eighth best ERA in the country. I've always thought. Once you get to Omaha, your side of the bracket was Stanford, Texas, Rice. You're facing all these major league, you know, the Guthrie and Umber and all these guys who who got drafted. I always felt like if you were on the other side of the bracket where there was all, you know, these teams were scoring all these runs, I felt like you had a chance to at least play for a, a national championship if you were in that pool. What what, what do you think? I think so too. You know, um, certainly our our side was just so talented from a pitching standpoint. I know. They, you know, they all they all you know we played three ball games, Sean, as you know, and they were all one or two run games. Yeah. They were all five five or less runs to win the game, and and so uh, uh, yeah, you know, it, certainly it's it, it, having taken a number of teams to Omaha now. I know that there, there's a real advantage of having been there previously numerous times and things like that, right? And uh, but I just felt like our pitching staff was if you know if we were were in the, maybe in the other bracket maybe we could have uh, had a maybe a little bit better chance because of our offensive club you know maybe not qu- quite facing the pitching that we faced in our bracket 
That, that's still, you know, again, to have the eighth best ERA in the country and no all-conference pitchers. What I mean, what does that, as a, as a pitching guy, what's that say to you? <laughs> Ah, you know, I, I love it because it's about it's about it's about a team, you know. I right. Mean, you know, had had Niesel not gotten mono, maybe he would have been, you know, you know, Grant Johnson had nine or ten wins or so. True. You know, it's hard for me. It's, it's hard for me to believe JP Gagne. You know, I think he had the close to ten wins and also had a number of saves. You yeah. know, there's a guy that probably had a really good argument, but you know what? It just speaks to that there wasn't one guy that you know wire to wire that just dominated the whole year um you know it was a collection it was a staff it took everybody for us you know what Niesel goes down Garnier pitches in a couple of different roles it took everybody to do their role and do their job and and that's that's what I'm proud of is if it was a pitching staff it wasn't a couple of guys at the front end that dominated all the time and you know that's uh pretty impressive Brian I'll, I'll... I'll let you go. I, I, one more question for you. So you, you obviously you go to the College World Series in a, as an assistant with Paul Maneri in 2002, you know, with Notre Dame. And then seven years later, you guys are both gone. You're the head coach at Virginia. Paul Maneri is the head coach at LSU. The, your next trip to Omaha, you're facing Paul Maneri in the first round at the College World Series. for our list, I know you've talked about this before, but for our listeners here in town, what, what was that experience like for you? Hated it. Hated it. <laughs> I bet you did. I bet you did. Because <laughs> I, just, I just hated play, I hated playing my best friend. And you know, he did the guy, too. <laughs> the, guy, the, guy, the guy, he was my mentor in the game. You know, like I sat across the, the office next to him for nine years and learned – how to the blueprint to have a championship high caliber program. And then to, you know, unfortunately one of us to lose a ball game in Omaha and unfortunately it was us, but right. you know, um, you know, it's just, uh, it, it didn't want to have to do it. And him and I made an agreement when, you know, when I left to came to Virginia that we would never play in the, unless the NCAA made us play. And that happened in Omaha and, and, um, you know, the, the mentor got me, you know, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, I just, that said, just so proud, right. To, to be standing on the field in the other dugout across from a guy that has meant so much to me, still talk to him all the time, still my mentor, call him on my biggest decisions that I have to make as, as a leader and want to get his input. And so just, um, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't like it when we knew we had to play each other. But you play the game. We we actually agreed that we wouldn't look at each other during the game. We just we would just manage the game and just not try to have to look across to the other dugout. And uh, you know, but that said, it's a great memory and glad we had a chance to do it. And the consolation prize, of course, for you, he goes on to win the national championship that season, and then six years later. You get the the ACC's first national championship in a million yeah. years, so it, it worked out in the long run for everybody. Fortunately, it did. <laughs> it it absolutely did. And like we lost to them, and I rooted like heck for them, and I'm just so glad they won that championship. And yeah. you know, it, it it all works out. Yep, Brian O'Connor, head coach at the University of Virginia, former Notre Dame pitching coach on that 2002 College World Series team, Brian. Appreciate your time. Good luck to your son in, in uh, the state playoffs out there in Virginia. And uh, uh, hopefully 
won't take quite as long to talk to you again. Hey, Sean, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, just thanks for thanks for doing this. Great fond memories of my time in South Bend and that, and that team. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Brian O'Connor, head coach at the University of Virginia, and again from Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team. We'll take a timeout when we come back. More Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat coming up. We've got a football recruiting update about 15 minutes away with Ryan Roberts that's coming up on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat continues on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Just got done talking with Virginia baseball coach, former Fighting Irish pitching coach Brian O'Connor. So we're pushing the Notre Dame football recruiting update back a little bit. That'll happen about 11 minutes from now. Ryan Roberts will join me and we'll get uh, some of the latest Notre Dame football recruiting information. Big story coming out today as uh, more uh, sports media news and a big name Tom Brady and this is kind of one of those deals not kind of it is it's basically the same kind of deal but for more money like what Drew Brees did with NBC a couple of years ago Fox Sports has uh, signed Tom Brady Hall of Fame quarterback to be to uh, a huge contract 10 years 375 million dollars he's going to be NFL's lead game analyst Fox's NFL lead game analyst once he retires. Don't know if that means one more year, two more years, whatever it happens to be. I guess we're assuming he's got one more year in him and then this is going to happen based on the fact they've signed this because, uh, you know, you know, again, it's, it's like Drew Brees. They signed him before he had ever done anything from a broadcasting standpoint. Tom Brady, much bigger stature. But he's going to jump into the booth, and this deal comes just a few months after both Tony Romo, or actually Troy Aikman, took overtook Tony Romo to become the highest-paid analyst in uh, sports at $18 million a year. So um, $375 million for 10 years, more than double what Troy Aikman is making. Troy Aikman's been in the booth. He's a Hall of Famer as well. He's been in the booth for two decades. Tom Brady has not been in the booth once, and he's going to make double what uh, Troy Aikman is making. Of course, Buck and Aikman, or uh, Aikman and Joe Buck, just went to uh, ESPN to become their new Monday Night Football booth. And uh, you know, I was I talked a little bit about this at the start of one of the shows last week, and you know, all the the musical chairs of broadcasting that's gone on. What this means is you would assume three Super Bowls from now it is going to be Tom Brady in the booth with Joe Burkhart, the uh, the new number one Fox play-by-play man. Greg Olson has been the number one Fox analyst for uh, well, just well, not, not he hasn't been the number one. He was the number two this past season. He's likely to be the number one this year. And uh, call a Super Bowl, but then probably get bumped to number two unless they make a three-man booth. But uh, there was talk about Drew B- Drew Brees possibly going to Fox to uh, replace Greg Olson. But this makes it look much more likely that we're going to see Drew Brees in the NBC Notre Dame football booth once again unless something different happens and then see him in uh, football night in America 
on NBC on Sunday nights. So, uh, so yeah, Tom Brady, 10 years, $375 million to become Fox's new lead NFL analyst after he retires. He's not retiring this season. He's still going to play this season. We don't know exactly what that means. But once he retires, again, just like with Drew Brees, he's going to jump right into the booth. Timeout Sports Center update is on the way. And then a Notre Dame football recruiting update with Ryan Roberts coming up at about 6.05. And then Vince D'Addario after that with Rapid Fire. And then South Bend Cubs baseball. It's all coming up on Sports Radio 960 WSBT South Bend. Budweiser's weekday sports beat continues on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT Hour 2 of the show. The shortened hour because we've got South Bend Cubs baseball pregame coming up here in about 33 minutes or so. And Vince D'Addario with Rapid Fire coming up as well. But uh, we moved our recruiting segment around a little bit, our Tuesday recruiting segment. Ryan Roberts is with us from irishbreakdown.com and risingdraft.com. How are you today, Ryan? I'm good, Sean. I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Good to talk to you. We've got some beautiful weather, so, you know, that's all we can ask for right now. And, uh, let, you know, let's let's talk a little bit. Uh, Notre Dame got a commitment over the weekend. Defensive lineman Devin Houston. What do you think about this four-star guy? Yeah, no, it, it, I think it was a great commitment for Notre Dame because I think that one thing that they have kind of been lacking on the defensive line, they've ha- been on off to a great start, obviously, getting a guy like a Keon Keeley, five-star out of Florida, Brendan Vernon out of Ohio, who's a really talented defensive end prospect as well that could potentially, I think, move in inside down the road. And kind of the same thing with Bubakar Triori out of Massachusetts they just got a couple weeks ago. They're mm-hmm. kind of those strong side defensive ends, maybe could be three techs down the line. But I think where... Devin Houston really comes into play for Notre Dame is they didn't really have a true nose in this class. They didn't really have a guy that could do a little bit of the dirty work by while also being a really good athlete in this attack style defense that I think Marcus Freeman has obviously implemented and now I think Al Golden's gonna get you know kind of his wrinkles with as well. So he's already right near six foot five, two hundred and eighty plus pounds, has a great frame. I think he's gonna be over three hundred pounds and it's uh it's an exciting one I think for Notre Dame because this was one where Notre Dame had been keeping tabs on him since Mike Elston was obviously the previous defensive coordinator before Al Washington took over, and they had developed a good relationship. And then you kind of just didn't hear too much about Devin over you know a couple period a couple months span because he visited in January, but he had not been back to Notre Dame, and he had actually visited Michigan, which his brother plays basketball for the Michigan basketball team. So you think. Family ties, only visit, you know, one of the few visits he took was to Michigan and didn't get back to Notre Dame. And still, despite those things kind of going against the Irish, Coach Washington and the rest of the staff were able to close this one without him getting back to campus, which I think says a lot for just the level of, of recruitment that the, that this new staff has kind of employed. I still, you know, I look at this, it is 12 commits now in this 2023 class, eight on the defensive side of the ball. Is it, like, are we seeing... You know, there, there's a lot of talent there. We know that. But are we seeing basically, you know, a, a defensive-minded first-year head coach? Is, is, you know, that just kind of the way it's shaken out? Or, you know, what are, what are, what are to we expect? Or what are, what are we to expect in terms of, you know, maybe um, how the, start, the class starts filling out on the other side of the ball at some point? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I would say that we should expect a bunch of offensive guys kind of be off the board here pretty soon. I, what you – have seen this season is 
coming in, you know, at, from the offseason <clears throat> into where we are now in the spring, the obviously with all the coaching changes that happens, you know, Coach Freeman obviously taking over before the bowl game and then really kind of, you know, working his staff this offseason and figuring out who's the best fits and bringing in new coaches. For the most part, the defense, I, I mean, although you're changing a defensive coordinator to Al Golden, the consistency throughout the, the hiring process is that Coach Freeman is still on the on the on the uh, on the staff, obviously, right? right? So I think that that didn't really impact the defensive staff because the main voice in the defensive room from last season was still on staff and just in a higher capacity. So I think that you didn't kind of interrupt momentum on the defensive side of the football. And I think on offense, although you returned Tommy Reese as the offensive coordinator. You brought in Dylan McCullough as the new running back coach. You brought in Jared Parker as the new tight end coach. You brought in Chancey Stuckey as the new wide receiver coach. And then you bring back Coach Heastan as the offensive line coach. So there was a complete turnover on the offensive side of the ball. And I think that just having Coach Freeman was able to get kind of a leg up on defense. But I think that's going to start to really, I think it's going to even out pretty soon here. We have guys that are, you know, going to come off the board here pretty soon on the offensive side of the football. So I don't think Notre Dame fans should worry. I think it's just more the... Just the, the situation that they were in from a coaching perspective. Gotcha. 2023 South Carolina tackle from the state of South Carolina. Sullivan Absher is going to announce his commitment later this week. What's what's kind of the buzz on him and, you know, the uh the uh recruit you know, the uh recruiting that Notre Dame has done with him? Yeah, if you listen to anything that we do in Irish Breakdown, it's been pretty consistent with both me and Brian over the last few months, but I honestly did not feel great about where Sullivan Absher was with Notre Dame. I, I always felt that they were kind of running in a in a kind of a distant second. I always thought that Clemson was the assumed leader, and then when he visited for the Blue Gold game a couple weeks ago, I think that Notre Dame completely flipped the script on it, on this situation. Hmm. You know, I, I think now that Notre Dame is heading into the decision, the clear favorite in my opinion. Obviously, you know, there's a closing that needs to happen but I, I think Notre Dame fans should feel really good about that one he's an important one he's a really talented kid 6'7 290 pounds long arms tackle I think he could also play inside a guard because he plays with great pad level really physical powerful player so uh, I think he would be an awesome get for coach Heastan who you know just got his first commit a couple weeks ago and Sam Pendleton the offensive lineman out of North Carolina and they continue to stay in the Carolinas there's a very non-traditional uh, untraditional Clemson versus Notre Dame battle for some offensive linemen this year, including uh, Pendleton and and um, and Absher that's going to be committing this Friday, and then Monroe Freeling, who also is a big target for Notre Dame as well. So kind of a, a strange year in that sense that Notre Dame is really going into the Carolinas for a lot of offensive linemen, but I feel like Notre Dame should feel really good where they are with Sullivan Absher, and it's another credit to Coach Heastan and the and the staff for the blue and gold weekend. I really think that they hit it out of the park with a guy like Sullivan Absher. Well, and how, how do you gauge the impact that, that Harry Heastan had on uh, recruiting Absher? Yeah, I, I think that, it, it, I mean, honestly, it's it's across the board. I, I know we're going to, you know, obviously focus on the Absher side of everything, but I, I really think that for a guy like Sullivan Absher, he was always really intrigued by Notre Dame. I mean, he had been there in the past. He was there for the January visit and then obviously came back for the blue gold game. And I always think that he really liked Notre Dame. Like I said, I think that they were definitely running as the second the second of the group, you know, coming into the Blue Gold visit. But I think it's just the history, you know, behind what Coach Heastan has accomplished at Notre Dame. You know, I mean, you, it doesn't take long. You just look at the list of, you know, the Ronnie Stanleys, the Quentin Nelsons, Mike McGlinchey's, Nick Martins. I mean, there's just a lot of great football players that he's obviously coached. And when Notre Dame was at their peak and when they had a claim for offensive line U, 
it was a lot of a lot of the credit has to be given to coach Eastan. So I think that he's really shown this time around too that there were some people when he was hired back had a question, you know, just with the age in his 60s, obviously. Like, does he want to recruit? Does he want to be out on the road? Yeah. And, there, and it, it, there's, it's an understandable question, you know? Like, it's, I mean, I don't blame people for for thinking that at all. But I think what he's really shown you, I mean, the minute that he was officially back on the staff, he was on the road, seeing Monroe, seeing Sullivan Absher, all over the place as far as his travel. So I think we have a revitalized um, you know, attack, plan of attack from the recruiting side from a Harry Heastan. And I think that his just pedigree and resume that he's been able to build at Notre Dame before I think was really kind of resonated with a few of the guys, including Absher. So uh, I guess what's next then as far as recruiting on the offensive line and, and how important is it that that uh, they end up you know with, with a good offensive line in this recruiting class? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a class that they needed numbers for for one. You know, I, I think that they would be okay with four, but I think they would really like to push the number to five. Obviously, they have Pendleton on board. You're hoping that they're able to get a Sullivan Absher this weekend, so you'd be up to two in that instance. But I think that the biggest thing for me, Sean, is everybody is so excited, obviously, for what they have at offensive tackle right now in sophomores Joe Alton, Blake Fisher. But there's no guarantee that either one of those guys will be there after the 2023 season when they're draft eligible because they are two already highly thought about players who have the world of talent. So you need to start kind of having a plan at offensive tackle specifically. And I think that that's what makes this cycle for guys like Monroe Freeling, who I talked about earlier, Charles Jagasaw out of Illinois, the big tackle. Like those guys are paramount. Sam Pendleton is a great start. Sullivan Absher, I think, could play offensive tackle. I think he could definitely play offensive guard, too. He's got a little bit of, of fun, uh, versatility to him. But a guy like Monroe Freeling, I think, is kind of the pivot point of this offensive line group. You need to get a guy that is a true offensive tackle, true blindside protector. I think he could be the next in line if he does choose Notre Dame. Charles Jagasaw is big as well because he's an, a guy that can play true offensive tackle, could maybe play inside a guard. But you need true offensive tackle types in this class. So if you get... Pendleton, obviously, already in the class. If you get a Sullivan Absher this this Friday, and then if you're able to lock in on guys like Monroe Freeling and Charles Jagasaw, who are top 100-level recruits, and both, I would say, Notre Dame is the, is the favorite for both of them right now. If you're able to get them, then from there, it's, do you want Elijah Page out of Arizona? Do you want a Joe Otting that they just offered recently who's more of an interior player? The fifth is kind of the cherry on top for me, but I really think that just overall – you need to get a strong group of four, and you need to get at least two that are true tackle types, and I think that they're in a good spot right now to to get that done. All right, so Sullivan Absher is the next guy to watch. He's announcing his commitment Friday. Do we know what time he's going to announce, Ryan? Yes, it's at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock. If anybody wants to watch live, we'll be. Uh, it's going to be on CBS Sports, but also at AverageBreakdown.com. We'll be live on the YouTube channel to uh, to forecast that as well. All right, sounds good. Ryan Roberts, AverageBreakdown.com. Great stuff as always. I will talk to you next week, buddy. Appreciate it, Sean. Thank you. All right, you too. Take care, Ryan Roberts, AverageBreakdown.com. Sullivan Absher committing Friday, so uh, we'll wait and see what happens there. We're going to take a timeout when we come back. Vince D'Addario joins me next. We've got a little bit shorter than usual rapid fire coming up tonight. That is on the way on Budweiser's weekday sports beat. South Bend Cubs baseball pregame is about 27 minutes away. Who wants to have some fun? 
Rapid Fire starts now on Sports Radio 960 AM, WSBT. And now your host, Sean Styers. Along with Vince D'Addario tonight, we've got South Bend Cubs baseball pregame coming up on a gorgeous night outside in South Bend pregame at 645. So uh, we've got just a little bit. All right, Vince, we'll jump right into it. Scale of 1 to 10. How much more strongly do you feel today compared to a year ago at this time that Notre Dame football is closer to winning a national championship? So I want to ask you how to quantify this. So if I say like a five, does that mean I feel the same? And then if I go below a five, that means less, and then above five is more? Like how do you want me to quantify this? Oh, boy. Now you've got me confused. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if, if five is like I feel the same way and like a three means I feel like they're fruity, okay. then I'm going to say like a seven and a half to eight. Okay. Because I feel like they're closer, so they're going to be on the right side of five. Um, I feel like and, – and look, I'll give Brian Kelly all the credit in the world. He has brought Notre Dame to a different place than they were when he took over. There's no question about that. Right. But the problem is I don't know if he was the guy to take him over the hump. Up to this point – I feel like Marcus Freeman could be that guy. From everything that he's done since he's been there, I feel like he could be the guy. So I feel better about their chances to get to the national championship and win the national championship than I did before Brian Kelly's exit. So I give it like a seven and a half, eight. Yeah, I think that's kind of along the lines of what I'm thinking. And, you know, so like if if last year I felt like could they are you know are they close to winning a national championship i probably would have said 5 then but if i use that as my baseline you know just basically zero it out like right how, how much stronger is my feeling now compared to then maybe a little bit lower you know but i still probably in that 7 range something like that sure. you know again along the lines of what you're talking about it just it just when you start to look back and you saw where recruiting was, which was good, you know, much more consistent. The program, obviously, is in a lot better shape now than 12 years ago when Brian Kelly took over. Much better shape now than in 2016 when it bottomed out, you know, where they've gone from then. You know, you know the, the recruiting, to their credit, the recruiting got better right away after 2016, after, they, you know, they changed all the coordinators and all that stuff. But it just feels like, when you start to look at what it takes to win national championships, we can poo-poo the star system and all that stuff all you want. But, like, Georgia just had five defensive players drafted in the first round, you know, and those were all very highly touted, you know, four, five-star. I think, you know, the bulk of them were five-star guys coming out of high school. Sure. And I just – that's sure. – like, when you look at – at an Urban Meyer, why was he successful at Ohio State? It wasn't necessarily because he had, you know, the the. And I think we saw some of this, you know, when he went to Jacksonville, it was put on display. Not necessarily, you know, the best people person. Not necessarily the best, you know, X and O game acumen type guy. But the guy could recruit. You know, he got the studs yeah. on campus, and that's what we've seen from Marcus Freeman. We started to see a little bit of that from him as an assistant. And we have obviously seen recruiting continue to grow with him as head coach. He's made that 
a priority. And I think that that's what it ta- it's going to take for Notre Dame to take that next step is not just X and O's, but getting that higher caliber player on campus to really be able to compete. Like once you get into those college football playoff games, now you're competing. You're not just there and losing by two or three touchdowns. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm right yeah. there with you. I think they're closer because of where Marcus Freeman is as a recruiter. Right, and and he is that guy who's also personable, and it doesn't yes. feel like yes. you have to cut through the BS with him. Um, there's not as much coach speak. At least it doesn't appear that way up to this point. I feel like we know what we get when we talk to Coach Freeman. Now, it's early. Don't get me wrong. It is early. Um but I also feel like he's not going to be afraid to make the tough decisions when it comes to his assistant coaches. I think that's one of the things that held Brian Kelly back at times was the ability to make that change from an assistant coach standpoint yeah. and kind of leave the friendships at the door um, and, and make those calls. That's not an easy thing to do for anybody. I, I will be the first one to admit that. Um, but I, I have a feeling that Marcus Freeman is not going to be afraid to make those calls too. But again, time will tell. But I feel like they're in a pretty good position right now. Yep, I agree. All right, here's a quote from South Carolina football coach Shane Beamer. Quote, I would like to see in either spring practice or in the month of August where we could actually scrimmage another college football team. We're the only sport at any level, high school, college, pro, any sport that doesn't get any kind of exhibition preseason scrimmage game against another team before you play for real, end quote. So do you buy or sell that from Shane Beamer, Vince? A huge buy for me. I, I think that it would be a tremendous for college. There is no reason. Notre Dame can't somebody from in a Mac school if you wanted or an FCS school. You're, uh, you're, you're kind of chopping on me. Right now, Vince, I don't, I don't know where you are. Sorry, if I can find a better spot. There you um, go. That's much better I, right there. <laughs> the huge box, what you heard from me, there's no reason they can't be playing like an Indiana State or you name them, right? It could be a Big Ten. If you, don't, you keep the D level, if you use that on your schedule, scrim it. It's a bus. No big You know what I mean? Million, you could do it right yeah, you're gonna have to you, in in the fall. Right there, stay right there. Okay, <laughs> you started chopping again. I was I was getting I was getting probably you know I I don't know however many syllables, but the just <laughs> the gist of the gist of what you were saying. There's no reason they can't play in Indiana State or some other school Correct. nearby. And, you know, like Purdue, for example. If you're not playing Purdue on the you know in the regular season or even Michigan or Michigan State, it's like. You know, you're a couple weeks exactly. into training camp. Like NFL teams do these joint scrimmages all the time. Bring another team in. Yeah. You know, like one year Purdue comes here. The next year you go down to West Lafayette. You do like a day's worth or two days worth of, you know, live scrimmaging, real situations against, you know, the other team. Again, just like the NFL teams do in training camp. Why not? What's so bad about that? Why why do division tickets to it? Yeah, exactly. You can do that too. Why do division one team, you know, basketball teams get to play the exhibition games, but football doesn't? It doesn't make sense to me, you know. And I, I just, I don't know. And I, because like we talked a few weeks ago about the uh, the idea of putting your FCS games 
at the end of spring. And, you know, again, like you could – it doesn't have to be like a full-blown game. But, again, rather than a spring practice, bring in another team at the end of spring and do absolutely you know you've got your first team guys going against other teams first team guys and second team against second team you know give yourself a a more true picture of of what exactly you've got rather than splitting your team and you know you've got some first team guys mixed with third team and you know it's like i i don't know i i don't know the downside to this i would think that most coaches would favor this I, i have no idea again just to what he's saying like why Way other sports can do this, but 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 football can't for some reason. I'll take it to it. You make the tickets nice and cheap. So this is an opportunity for family who there's no chance that we could afford to take. I take people to a Notre Dame game. This is the next best thing. You know what I mean? Like we can go. Vince, I'm starting to no, lose you. I'm starting to lose you again. Man. All right. <laughs> it's one of those nights. Vince really? is Vince is on the run from one place to another and uh yeah, so it's 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 been a little bit mixed. Like for a for a couple seconds there you had a great signal, but you started it started right. That sounds good right I'm there. Going outside. Okay. I'm going outside. You sound good saying outside. Let's go to the next question. <laughs> The Broncos, right. the Broncos are going to play the Rams on Christmas Day. They just made this announcement today. It's one of three Christmas Day games the NFL will play this season. So if you were a player, would you want to play on Christmas Day? As a media member, would you want to cover a game mm. on Christmas Day? What do you think about this? Well, the answer is no for both, um, to be honest with you. It, it, to me, you know, Christmas is a, is a family day. You know what I mean? And I realize... You know, is Christmas more important than Thanksgiving? Obviously, Thanksgiving has turned into a football holiday. Um, Christmas has been an NBA, quote-unquote, holiday for a long time. And I, yeah, the NBA's got to be ticked about this because they're going to get – their they're ratings are the ones that are going to hurt yeah. if there's a football game going on. Big time. Um, but from a media standpoint, uh, that's the worst. I, I would not want to cover a team on Christmas Day, especially if it's on the road. That would be horrible uh, mm-hmm. in so many ways. So I, I would not like that at all. I realize if you're a player, you don't really have a choice. That's what you signed up for. Uh, but, man, for the media, that just stinks. You're kind of getting your chain yanked on that one, and I, I would not like that at all. I know. And, you know, there's always going to be those people out there, oh, you, you're getting paid to, to go cover a game. What are you complaining about? It's yeah. To me, Christmas is the biggest holiday of the year. And whether you're right. – no you know, and I realize these players and coaches are making a lot of money, but they're still people, and they have families too, and it's right. it's a major holiday, you know, and it, and it's it's for that matter, it's Christmas, you know the the, the right. name the 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 name of the holiday is in the holiday. There's there's a reason that it's Christmas yeah. Day, right? You know, it celebrates the birth, and it, it's like this is. I don't know. You know, like you said, Thanksgiving has essentially, be, you know, it's it's obviously a big football day. You know, like as a fan of a team that plays on every Thanksgiving, I'm sure. kind of tired of my team being held up to be, you know, everyone else's entertainment while I have to oil and misery watching <laughs> bad game after bad game every Thanksgiving, you know. But, yeah, I just, yeah, it's it. Christmas is Christmas, and it's for families. And I, I don't like the fact, you know, it's. I guess it's nice to be able to flip on the TV and see this. I would not want to be working either as a player, a coach, 
you know, a staff member or a media member on Christmas Day. It would really stink. So no, no I would and that would be like a really it. hard sell. It'd be a hard sell in my house. Yeah. to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. my, my wife would not be happy about me having to go to work, no matter what that work is, yeah. on Christmas Day. That, that, that just It would not fly, and I understand why. Yeah. Being away from your family on Christmas sucks. I mean, being away, from, you know, on any holiday sucks, I think. Absolutely. Especially Christmas. All right, last question tonight. If you were starting a TV sports network, which announcer would you build that network around? Man, that is a tough one, to be honest with you. Um, uh, so we're talking about like a play-by-play guy? Whatever you want I'm it to so- be. Yeah. Okay, you, but all right. I'll you know, tell you what. You're okay. Basically, so like you're going to start the new ESPN. Go. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Look, I, and I know this would be controversial, but I know people would tune in. Uh, I, I would have Joe Buck be my guy. And, I, and here, here's one of the main reasons why. That man is one of the most versatile play-by-play callers on the planet right now. And he could do baseball games for me. He could do football games for me. He could probably do basketball games for me if I needed him to. Um, He would be the guy because he is so versatile, and I know the product that I'm going to get from him from sport to sport, and it's a pretty high-quality product. I would build around him. I, I really would. That's it. I mean, the only sport I haven't heard him do, you know, of the major sports, is basketball. I'm sure he could do right. it because, you know, he's he's done a million World Series and baseball games. He's done a million Super Bowls. You know, the NFL. He's hosted talk shows. You know, I haven't seen him, you know, like anchor a sports, you know, the, the, like a sports cast right. sports center kind of thing. But I sh- I'm sure that he could. And it just yeah. feels it's like, you know, I realize Joe Buck is is polarizing. But to me, th- that's actually a good thing because that means that people feel passionately one way about him or another. And I, I, you know, like, so if you're starting up a network to have that kind of profile of guy, I think that is perfect. And just what you said, he's so versatile with all the play by play. I honestly don't even know who the number two would be. Like, yeah. you know, would it be a Gus Johnson? I don't know. I just, I feel like Joe Buck is head and shoulders above him. Maybe like a Jim Nance, but like I much prefer Buck to Nance to begin with. So, uh, I I think it's Joe Buck and and yeah. number two for me. I uh, you know again I I think there's a pretty good gap in between there. Well, I, come on, number two is easy. It's Sean Styers. <laughs> yeah, come on. Uh, that's why I'm sitting. That's why I'm sitting here talking to you, right? <laughs> oh, harsh. No, mean, it it's not, not wrong. It's not, it's not a <laughs> shot at you. It's like, yeah, okay, okay, great. <laughs> I know you're versatile, baby. You can do it all, <laughs> but we're go. good. There you go. All right, well, speaking of versatile, Vince, who wears 100 million hats throughout the year, is uh, you're, you're what, a couple of weeks away from uh, sectional baseball and all that kind of good stuff. May so, 25th is yeah. round one, yeah. Weather got nice just in time for you to have maybe a couple good weeks of it, so – yeah, this is the first day of practice where I actually cracked a sweat. So Man. there you go. Nice. All right, Vince. <laughs> enjoyed it as always. I'll talk to you later this week. Yes, sir. Thanks, Sean. Good to talk to you. All right, you too. Budweiser's weekday sports beat brought to you by Budweiser, Tim Ground State Farm Insurance, Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger, the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. And that is it. That's going to do it. Budweiser's weekday sports beat. South Bend Cubs baseball is coming up next live from Four Winds Field. We'll talk to you tomorrow night in Budweiser's weekday sports beat.
Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering, char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. 